Welcome to Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. I'm Carolyn Ford. Each week, Mark Snell and I talk with top influencers to explore how the U.S. government is harnessing the power of technology to solve complex challenges and improve our lives. Hi, I'm Carolyn Ford. Thanks for joining us for So What? Tech Transforms Federal News Roundup where every month, Tracy Bannon, Senior Principal with MITRE's Advanced Software Innovation Center, joins me to co-host So What? And together, we unpack some of the biggest trending news topics in federal technology space. Hey, Tracy, good to see you. Hey, how are you doing today, Carolyn? I'm doing great. I'm loving the pink. It's really popping. <laughs> it always makes me happy to see you because you just look happy. You just got to be authentic, peeps. You just got to be authentic. Yeah, it's it's always fantastic. So today we get to talk to Paul Puckett, Director of Enterprise Cloud Management Office. Paul, did I get that title right? So uh, we've actually now become a uh, an agency. So we're now the Enterprise Cloud Management Agency. Uh, and that pivot happened just about a year and a half ago. Uh, we became uh, officially a field operating agency and no longer a directorate within the CIOs. Rather being uh, in the CIO, uh, I simply report to uh, Dr. Raj Iyer as the CIO. And really what that did is it opened up our charter. Uh, so we moved from the typical policy and governance that you'd find with a directorate within the CIO. Uh, whereas now we we definitely help contribute for policy and governance, um, but we are able to own the entire delivery of all capabilities and services uh, when it comes to the cloud for the Army. So it, it allowed us to move into the, the realm of execution, uh, which is something that we think is just uh, absolutely critical uh, when it comes to uh, adopting cloud at scale. Interesting. I thought that that was your role before this um, reorg that you, you had oversight over all of the Army Cloud before. Well, yeah, so, so there, there's, um, I'll unpack that word. So if you, if you look at the, the title of the organization prior, the Enterprise Cloud Management uh, Office, uh, it really denotes kind of just the, the management, right? Just kind of the, the oversight of mm. uh, maybe we'll say the, uh, the kind of the, the guider strategist Mm -hmm. um, uh, but more so other people are in the business of the actual execution and operations. Um, and from a charter perspective, you know, CIO is, is policy and governance only. Um, uh, but the Secretary of the Army at the time uh, felt that there was kind of a greater imperative and need for the ECMO uh, to be more than just oversight, um, that we actually need to be truly in the services delivery business, right? Actually delivering Mm -hmm. capabilities and services as a service to the Army, so more so than just uh, the management of it. So while the management didn't change, we became an agency. And so with that pivot, it allowed us to have a new charter uh, that was created and ultimately approved by the Secretary uh, and by Congress. And so with that, it gives us the uh, official authority to be in the business of the, the doing rather than just the, the oversight. Ah, I love that. A doer and... Seamer is the wrong word. What's the right word, Tracy? Strategist, but the doer, the implementer. That's yep. fantastic. And this is a, yeah. it's a it's a big move for government, right? It's happening uh, in lots of different pockets in government, but it's a nice change to see because government has been oversight. They've done a great yeah. job as oversight, but 
oversight without having that experience that Paul is bringing to the table, that his organization is bringing to the table, they can say firsthand, this works, or we are continuously improving. Here's what we need to change. And it's not just book learning. It's not just having talked to somebody else. They're living it, they're doing it, and then they can better impact policy, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. So true. Well, that's one of my... uh... One of my favorite videos on YouTube is, is an old school Steve Jobs video where, where um, uh, someone kind of pokes at him, but the, the conversation of consultancy comes up. Um, and he makes this comment, it's not to poke consultants in the eye, but he makes this comment essentially, essentially until one has actually done and actually lived with the pain of something that they've delivered uh, to make it then better for people to consume it. Um, you know, one one truly can't say that they that they understand the problem, and so I'll, I'll typically say it in other ways. There are a lot of theorists mm-hmm. out there, right? But the actual practice of doing forces somebody to live with the uh, the outcomes of their decisions uh, and forces them to learn and become better in delivering better capabilities and services. Um, vice than just imposing the theory of of what right looks like to others mm-hmm. uh, and not living with the consequences. And so I felt my team um, needed to live that. Um, and so that's uh, a big part as to why we now carry that. Well, and I really like that you're a doer, not that you weren't a doer before, but now officially, because we're going to talk about zero trust today. I mean, there's been a lot going on with zero trust and zero trust has been around for decade plus, right? But there's been a lot yeah. of activity around it lately, um, recent White House memo. And for me, at least, it can be a very nebulous buzzword that doesn't mean a whole lot. Even though I know we've all been told it's what we're going to do, <laughs> we're going to do it by a certain time frame. Um, it would be really great if you could just level set us on zero trust. Give us a definition that we can all digest. Digestible definition, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So uh, I, I heard this from someone else, so it's it's not mine. I won't even claim it as mine, but I just think it's beautiful. Um, the The journey of zero trust is continuously removing implicit trust over time across all facets of your people process and technology that delivers whatever mission business strategic objective you know your organization uh, kind of exists to achieve right and so to say that a, a different way kind of the inverse is typically we have delivered capabilities and services especially within such a highly regulated industry, such as mm-hmm. the Department of Defense, um, where uh, you having a certain uh, thing or device or your presence predominantly within a network or within a security boundary of a network, right? Like, hey, all of these things that I control that this system touches, I'm going to draw this artificial virtual box around. And so anything that finds itself inside this box, I can trust. It is uh, implied uh, trust simply because of your very, you know, being within that that system. Um, And so this this pivot and this move towards zero trust is 
there's <laughs> there's a lot that is implied in the way that we've uh, derived trust where uh, now it means that any adversary uh, that all of a sudden happens to find themselves within that box next to us uh, is just as trusted uh, as anyone else or anything else. Um, and that's quite frankly, that's the the start of uh, so many of the, uh, the cybersecurity events that we see today is, is someone uh, kind of rested their laurels on that virtual security boundary on that network, mm-hmm. um, all of a sudden got owned and now came to realize uh, their ability to see uh, as well as remediate uh, vulnerabilities within that boundary were just uh, dramatically lacking. And so this journey of a zero trust is to continuously over time remove implicit trust. Um, and it's something where you know it is never done. We're always going to be seeing and exactly. monitoring Thank and you. finding that you know whereas uh, you know things that are like, oh actually I see where there is implied trust here and and remove it. And so, you know, hopefully in the, in the conversation we get to hear is that's not just a technology thing. That's a people thing. That's a process thing. Um, so there, there are a number of different things that we have to address in order for us to uh, continuously re, uh, remove implicit trust over time. I think what you just said is very important to just repeat. Zero trust is something that's never going to be done. It's, is it fair enough to say like, it's a philosophy, it's an architecture, it's a living, breathing thing that, is that, yeah? I think, Man, I, I, it's, Trace, what do you think? It's more like almost uh, a practice? practice? I, would, I, would, I, I tend to go the same thing with um, DevSecOps. I don't say it that much anymore. I say modern software practices. What are the things that we need to do? Because they're going to change. Right. They're going to be new technologies. They're going to be new processes. We're going to find better ways to do things. So we're going to do it the best that we can now. And then as new things come along, we're going to adopt those and tailor them to our specific context, to to the needs that we have. Okay, before we move off the definition of zero trust, Mm because Paul's was almost like poetic. It was beautiful. But, you know, I I, I need a story, Tracy. Give it to me in words. (laughs) What what do we say? Tech like I'm 10 or explain like I'm five? Yes, please. Um, all right. So look, if you if you think about it, the castle has a wall around it and a moat around it. If you can get into the castle, think about any of those fun movies, right? The Last Kingdom series. You get inside the castle, you pretty much can go anywhere that you want, right? No one's going to notice you. If you think somebody's going to notice your face, just pull your hat down over your, you know, your hood down a little bit and you just go anywhere you need. Zero trust in this context means, well, we're not going to depend on the moat. We're not going to depend on the walls. Think of it now as going into a, you know, a, a business and you have to swipe your key to go into the front door and you have to swipe your key to go into the next door and you have to swipe your card t- key to go in anywhere, whether it's a bathroom, whether you want to pick something up, anything that you touch, anything that you want, anything that you need. We've got to prove that that's who you are and that you're allowed to be here and you're allowed to have access to that thing. Do you that's ever use the difference. The term continuous authorization with that. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me, but maybe I'm misusing that term. It's a mm. it, go ahead, Paul. Confusing it. Mm. <laughs> say, it's, let's, uh, let's pick that one and we'll just put that right over okay, here. Never we'll mind. Put that right <laughs> over here. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's uh, I, yeah, I I think it would be best <laughs> for us to just place that to the side for for just a brief moment. That's a loaded term, right? Well, it, it, sure, it's a lo- it's a loaded term, but they're actually um, things that are implied in that, that quite mm-hmm. frankly, uh, I would argue as we go on this journey, um, 
we need to uh, constantly move across certain, I'll say, steps uh, mm -hmm. within that framework, right? Like to, to use Trace as a you know analogy, like the the moat in the kingdom, right? Um, well, let's let's be honest. Like we've all seen the movies. Tip typically, the the king or the queen, right, isn't just out there in the town square, you know, just inside the moat. Typically, there are layers, right? Like mm -hmm. wait, 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 like this is the you know, the king's quarters, which means that we've probably got some guards around that. There are probably other doors uh, to be passed into, right? There's probably other credentials of who can actually go and meet with the king or the queen. And the reason being there is they said, hey, uh, this person or this thing, think of the crown jewels, right? Think of, you know, whatever it might be. Um, this holds value. This holds, this holds worth. If this were to be lost, if this were to be heard or whatever it might be, um, we would find ourselves in in just horrendous uh, situations, and quite frankly, if you look at the risk management framework, it's really no different. When we talk about categorization, selection, you know, building an assessment, ATO, any kind of discussion of a continuous, you know, ongoing authorization or continuous ATO, it requires us to constantly evaluate um, what is this thing of value. Therefore, you know, what are the risks and the impacts and the probabilities? How do I therefore need to protect it, right, in order for me to be able to go and, and execute my mission? And so, really, if you think about it, this pivot into a zero-trust architecture and the components, I think where people get lost is, um, you know, we say a practice. But sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their hands around what to do next in a practice. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm, we'll create mm -hmm. reference architectures or we'll create new frameworks. So we're like, we start to kind of put it into pieces so people can digest it. And, and I think just the simplest piece is um, it really is requiring us to take an inventory of what we have, uh, you know, truly what it is, just how valuable it is, and then build the actual services and systems and capabilities. Uh, to protect it appropriately, uh, where there are no implied, uh, you know, trust scenarios that we're just simply carrying into the architecture for how we deliver it. So it really, it just requires us to to now know what we got, know how to secure it, no different than you would, uh, mm -hmm. you know, understand the king or the crown jewels needs some type of special access thing, special credentials to it, a special place in which you put it, you know, that it's, it's uh, secure and you always know it to always be secure. Right. And it's not it's not as easy as just grabbing, you know, taking out a knight down the hallway and putting the hat on because you have to, <laughs> you know, you have to know that. Right. You have to put on that that uniform to to get to the door. But you've got to know the passcode. You've got to know the protocols. There are a whole bunch of additional special things that you need right in this brave new world where we are being more secure. And I love the phrase that you use there around those jewels, around those things that are the most important to us. That also helps you, doesn't it, Paul, in trying to triage. You're an organization and you've got the memo. The memo says you've got 60 days to, to give me your plan. And now you have to start acting on this plan. I've seen a lot of panic uh, or is people are not quite days? sure where to start. Wait, wait, the memo is, it's you have 60 days from when? Um, from the time the memo came out, they gave agencies 60 days to have some sort of plan, just a plan. It didn't define what the plan is. It said 60 days to get a plan. Um, and People ran towards the NIST reference architecture. They ran in different directions, trying to figure out what they should do. But where I was going to go with this was kind of to ask Paul some opinions on that risk profile. 
right? Not necessarily RMF, but just taking a risk posture, mm. knowing what's your inventory and trying to figure out, decide, well, what do I need to do first? Well, what's your biggest risk? Well, it could be that massive <laughs> lake where I put all my data in it. Could be that mm. thing. That might be a nice attack surface, or it could be that I have a relatively open network because of where I sit or the type of uh, people that are working with us. I mean, how, when you sat through this, as you've helped others, how did you help them over the last year as they've been panicking with this? How have you been guiding them on where to even start to think about this? Uh, well, I mean, first, first, I'd say, you know, I, I've been a, I've been a voice in the room, uh, but to, you know, to think that, that I'm, I'm the guide or the shepherd and, and the others are the sheep is uh, absolutely, you know, absolutely false. There's a number of of really great and smart and committed individuals in the United States Army um, that understand the imperative. Um, when the cybersecurity memo uh, came out, um, understood exactly you know what we need to do in order to not just you know meet the timelines of it, but actually have something that is uh, tangible and executable that comes out of it, right? Um, and so uh, I I probably tackle it in, in a few different pieces. Um, uh, first, taking an inventory of, of what we have. Actually, the Army's been in the taking inventory of what we have business uh, since the data and cloud execution order came out back in 2019. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the components of the, the cybersecurity um, uh, executive uh, uh, order uh, was uh, to have a cloud plan uh, around systems and data to leverage you know, cloud to the greatest extent. Well, we were able to, the moment it came out, check that box because we've had a cloud plan uh, since we put this uh, party together back in uh, in 2019 and put out the 2020 cloud plan just a, a few months after. But the taking inventory of what you have and therefore how to protect it is something that is going to take a lot of time. Um, uh, for those that are kind of trying to understand this, you know, we talk about, we say that data is a strategic asset, um, but uh, uh, there's... <laughs> We're trying, but there's really no place, there's no database for anyone to go to the query and understand precisely what data we have and what attributes oh we know about it. It just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in the midst of creating it, right? But it's very immature at this time. And then understanding truly how we need to enhance the actual uh, protections of that data and the systems that are the the mechanisms by which we are both creating as well as consuming you know, that data. Um, the attributes of those systems and how they have or have not been secured, you know, sit within a system like EMAS, right? A, a relatively stale database of information that if you got your ATO three years ago, it may not have been updated for two and a half years. Yep. So truly being able to like take that inventory of what do I have? What is this data? Has it been, you know, um, uh, appropriately uh, one classified? because uh, we often see people over-classify data, uh, but one, appropriately classified, and two, appropriately protected, um, that's just going to be something that people are going to do uh, over a long period of time. Um, but from a, you know, how do, how do we tackle this? One, from a technology perspective, how do we need to get actually all these systems and all this data? From a people perspective, what are the kinds of skill sets that we need? Because those people are the you know, ones helping us do that analysis mm-hmm. and understand precisely you know, where we are and where we need to be. And then from a process perspective, uh, this can't take 
the same very, very, very long time that we've seen and how we've done assessments and accreditations before to enhance capabilities, let alone the process by which uh, we need to start to deliver the specific technical components of a zero trust reference architecture. When we talk about truly mature identity and credential access management, um, and that's not just an identity of a person, um, but really a persona as, mm-hmm. you know, a, a human can be an administrator, they can be an actual general user, they can be some other type of flavor of a, perhaps a, um, an empowered general user, much like someone who's able to contribute, you know, software code into a baseline, let alone your device now has a, an identity, if you will, or even when we talk about machines working for us, there are identities that a machine now needs to have to have machine to machine exchanges of data for a non-person entity. Um, there are all these things of maturity and that's just ICAM alone, let alone the actual policies, right? It's the, you know, if you have this credential and you're trying to access this data at this point in time, um, you know, in, in these contexts, then therefore, yes, you can, or no, you cannot, or only under these conditions, both the policy as well as the enforcement of that policy has to now be universally understood across right. all of these systems. And then the attributes of data that itself um, has to be universally understood across these systems. Otherwise, you can't exchange that data. And, and if you just pause on that, uh, we've got a crazy amount of work to do. We do. Um, and, so, and so that, I think, is it's a big elephant to start to chew. Um, and thankfully, in the Army, uh, and, and even discussions within JADC2, uh, thankfully, people have started to realize is that mature identity and credential access management really is that linchpin cornerstone mm-hmm. from a technology perspective. Um, because at the end of the day, if you're going to move into explicit trust, we're like, yes, these two things can exchange this information. It means that they're going to be sharing the credentials by which they have been authorized to access data or exchange that information. And those credentials have to be universally understood. Um, and, uh, and so that, quite frankly, that, that first of uh, what do you have that I also agree that we can now share this information, that ICAM maturity is really that linchpin. And that's where the Army and really the DOD has been um, yeah. hyper-focusing now to start but- this journey. I want to take us back to to data and foot stomp on that a little bit. Um, so I I talk about data as being our most important currency, right? It is the most important asset, the most important currency. And one of the things that I've I've observed and I've helped in in good ways and helped in bad ways has been people wanting to consolidate their data. So I jokingly say, look, you don't put all your money in a tin can. Uh, in the yard because you don't need all of your data together. We have distributed compute. We will have distributed data. So our best bet to your point, Paul, is where is my data? And in what state, when does it move and when does it need to move? And then branching out, who needs those accesses to it? Now, we've got tremendous duplication, triplication, quite right. We've got copies of copies of copies. So we've, we've got a lot of challenges across all of government, heck across all of industry, but it's, it, government is not unique in this situation. Um, some commercial areas just had, you know, have been at this a little bit longer and have been forward leaning on some aspects of it. 
that 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 data, getting at that data, allowing that data to reside in place, not necessarily always moving it, is is hard for people because they've spent better part of two decades trying to get all their data in one place. They've mm. all of the how many efforts have been around. We've got to move this data forward. We need it all in in one place for this reason. We've got technologies now. Um, and not that tech is always the answer, but we do have better enabling technologies even now than we did five years ago that help us with that data virtualization, with those semantic layers, with a data fabric. Um, we can get into the long discourse over data mesh mm-hmm. and then, you know, into dynamic policy, right? Policy is code. And how do I make that policy as code? How do I connect that to my ICAM, right? my identity management to get more full bodied? Now, those are all nice words. Building that is is difficult. Knowing how to map it, I, what I am fearful of, love to hear your thoughts on this. I'm fearful that people are going to try and design a Taj Mahal. Well, what they really need to do is get started with some of this experimentation for their organizations. Don't draw a huge map, draw a small map, get started somewhere so that you get to your point earlier, get people's hands on, get them used to your organization needs to get smart. And the only way that your organization is going to get smart is not simply by studying it. It's going to be by doing some aspects of it and they're going to fail and they're going to fall down and that's okay. That's great. You, They're going to learn as long as they're learning using you know hypo, hypothesis driven approach to this. We think this, we're going to try this. This is what we learned. We didn't fail, succeed or fail. We have an outcome. What are we going to do with that outcome? Well, we need to do a better job of X or of Y or of Z. Haven't a lot of agencies already started at least some pieces? I mean, Paul, Paul, have you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, for sure. It may, may have started. It's, it's um, you know, I poke at, I poke at maturity. Um, it, it, There's got to be a model uh, for uh, it. Uh, Isn't there a maturity <laughs> model for this shit? Like there, there's got to be. <laughs> oh, um, I won't get into my thoughts on maturity models, but it, there's, uh, I'm going to say some things out of love. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been hyper frustrated uh, around discussions of machine learning and artificial intelligence when in reality, um, there is so much work to be done in just basic data engineering and data architecture. Mm-hmm. For us to be able to simply take an inventory of what we have and the attributes of, like to to me that is that is where you know when you talk about data as a strategic asset, uh, I'll say it this way: Pe- people are uh, to use your you know money analogy, uh, they have got a portfolio of investments they have no stinking clue what they have, mm-hmm. uh, and they're also spending money that they have no stinking clue well, what how, they have or even where. How it's are going. you finding like? How are you mapping it all? Do you partner with industry to do it? Is it like how so are you tracking? Yeah, it? so it, yeah, so it starts. So it starts in a few in a few different ways, and and I'll kind of take it this way. Um, first, you need to start to deliver an actual catalog, right? Mm-hmm. Where people come to the table and they say, "Hey, uh, let me tell you within this system that I have that I'm a system owner. Let me tell you all the data, the data fields uh, that I've got." Um, you know, the dictionaries uh, that help you understand by which what I mean by this thing, right? Like, you know, uh, in a a field of a database that says, you know, F underscore name, it means first name, right? And and that would mean the same thing as somebody else saying the word just first name. So when you see F name and first name, it actually is trying to tell you the same information because it's talking about humans' first name. Um, That catalog of data 
uh, has to be centralized. And so the Army has got the Enterprise Data Services Catalog, uh, which exists for precisely that purpose. Uh, and that's really where, where we're starting. Uh, and we've actually been started for quite some time. Yep. But there's so much work that has to move beyond that. And I'll, and I'll hit this from a, from a Payne's perspective. Um, when I first came on board uh, to stand up the, the ECMO at the time, uh, a lot of people would say, you know, hey, oh, the, cloud is, the cloud is insecure and it's not secure enough for my data. When in reality, the examples that they would draw were systems designed that actually had no idea what data that they had. And they were designed in this, you know, build a big moat and, you know, it's the biggest moat in the world and everything's great perspective. And then they found that someone actually breached their moat and got access to their data. And now all of a sudden, you know, the data in the system in the cloud is insecure. When in reality, um, as part of that move into a new infrastructure environment, they should have done the work to understand well, what data do I actually have? And am I, uh, you know, protecting it appropriately and truly taking that inventory and I would say a lot of people haven't done that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, it's what's, you know, continuing to seed these feelings of, you know, insecurity. And it's it's a false sense of security because people, when they say like, oh, I'm not going to put it in the cloud, I'm going to keep it on-prem. The point being is your on-premise infrastructure is just another big moat that you hope no one ever breaches if you're not exactly. doing that hard work. Exactly. And so that's why I say this, the data engineering side is so critical for us to first take an inventory of what we have and then be able to drive, okay, uh, here's how I need to appropriately protect that data um, that starts to fall into this more zero trust architecture as I remove implicit trust over time. Does that that kind of start to make sense, Carolyn? Yeah, I'm just thinking about like my spice cupboard. I can't even take an inventory of it. So I'm thinking about all this massive data that you're talking about. It sounds overwhelming and impossible Mm. to take an inventory and to keep that inventory up to date. So how do you do that? Well, you're you're also incentivizing different folks in different ways. So in, in Paul's analogy, you know, and merging that with yours, Carolyn, Imagine that every we don't need to index everybody's spice cabinets in town all at once. We need to to start with one of them. And so Carolyn's going to start with her spice cabinet and she's going to be incentivized. And we have to talk about that. What will incentivize people to actually give that information away? A manual process? It's not all manual, um, but it is. It's it, there are aspects of it that are human intensive. There are absolutely tools that you can run against your your data that can that can crawl, that can create your um, gosh. It can give you deduplication issues. It can give you conflict issues. It can give you all your schematics. It can show you where you have um, across your own enterprise duplication, triplication. It can show you all of that stuff. The tools are just that, though. They're tools. They have to be leveraged by smart people. Mm. But I have a question for Paul. Mm. How do we incentivize folks to want to contribute? Because I'm also seeing two things. One, I'm seeing people say, I, I'm, I, my imperative is that I'm doing this bit of work, um, and I don't, I don't owe you anything. Therefore, I'm not joining in that club. I'm just not joining in that club. The second one is we've got, you know, getting into that data hoarding and, and, and incentivizing folks to, to share. It's a carrot and stick. Um, mm. <laughs> what's the carrot? I know what the stick is, right? It's, it's policy. It's funding. What's, what's the carrot in all of this, Paul? Yeah. So, ooh, okay. 
uh, tell, tell a quick little story. Um, 9-11 commission happens. And what was their finding? Their finding was uh, the different agencies within the intelligence community actually had all of the data that would help us potentially um, avoid um, the catastrophes that happened on 9-11. But because of this culture, not necessarily data hoarding, um, but it's this, it's this feeling as though uh, there's a sensitivity my, to my data and no one can get access to it when in reality, even you and your own people and getting access to it is a, you know, who you are and what you have and, and what you should need to know type of thing it is at the very least, we need to share with each other, um, you know, what those parameters are. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has access to all the data willy nilly. No, it just simply means that we're sharing uh, I'll say the the calculus, if you will, of mm-hmm. the if this, then that, of of where all of those attributes are met, you can appropriately have access to that data. And putting that in a place that was discoverable, and one of the core components that came out of the 9-11 Commission and now uh, the immense data maturity that you see in the intelligence community was also them aligning on centralized identity and credential and access management, right? What is the actual policies and then enforcements for the credentials presented? for the attributes of data and the big push that you saw with, um, uh, not to be confused with other GovClouds, but NSA GovCloud was creating the actual metadata catalog uh, for everyone to start to publish and populate um, the simply the, the attributes and the access controls of the data that they had, not necessarily the data itself, which meant you know, people can go and, uh, and get access to it. And so I think from a, a carrot perspective, Quite frankly, it's the mission imperative, yeah. comment one. Comment two, and I wouldn't necessarily call it a stick, but I struggle maybe to call it a carrot, is um, we cannot predict the future. You know, we, we oftentimes will, will go and acquire and build new systems and say, hey, this system has to be able to talk to these five other systems. And we create these very custom point-to-point interfaces to talk to those five systems. And all of a sudden, something happens and we're like, oh my gosh, there's another system you're supposed to be talking to. And I've never thought about it. Um, and quite frankly, rather than trying to predict all the systems you have to talk to and, uh, writing a whole bunch of custom code to do it, we really just need to say, Hey, uh, you're going to be creating data. You need to be able to publish that data to be discoverable by others. And you need to have interfaces built to open commercial standards so that if they meet all these wonderful attributes, they can go and call and get access to that data. And that's something that you see that is very much in the stick, which is mm-hmm. now the data decrees yeah. that have come from DevSec, Dev Hicks that says, hey, here's the deal. Uh, all of your data is going to be visible, accessible, understandable, linked, trusted, interoperable, and secure. That, that's going to happen. And when we first stood up uh, the ECMO at the time, uh, I briefed the then Secretary of the Army on the way forward that we're going to go for cloud. And and Carolyn, I said, hey, there are three things that we have to deliver as a service. Common cloud services, that is all of the services and capabilities in order to consume commercial cloud um, that meets wonderful DoD uh, regulations, that it's not only secure, but continuously insured and monitored and remediated to be uh, secure. 
so that people can actually go and be tenants within the cloud. So common cloud services. The second one was common tools and services for modern software development. Because if, if there are some common things that we probably need access to, like a code repository or build pipelines or some type of you know, security or testing scanning tools, rather than have everyone go and deliver the same thing you know, 50,000 different times, we probably deliver it once and have it be consumed by many. But the third key component that we pitched was common data services. So you said, hey, is it manual? A lot of it could be automated, like Trace said. Um, but it means someone's got to be in the business of delivering those tools and those services for people to consume. Otherwise, you're going to get a thousand different uh, data, you know, exact trans you know, transform and load or load transform, choose whatever flavor you want uh, as a service. And they're probably all going to do it just a little bit differently. And that third piece, I would argue, is the most critical piece. And I would also argue it's probably the most immature piece that we mm -hmm. see in the DoD today. Uh, anyway. A lot of the data services that we see stood up have been data services around specific data domains. Yep. Like, hey, you deal with cyber monitoring sensor data. Cool. Here's your data ecosystem for you. Oh, you, you deal with personnel data. Cool. Here's your data ecosystem for you. But if you don't purposely, you know, kind of fit into those buckets, you're kind of left hanging mm -hmm. saying who can help me with data services and so we started to lean in there uh, to deliver uh, an api management platform for both the creation the publishing and this discovery of now these new open interfaces that aligns to the data decrees and we see that as really kind of step one in the common data services uh, business we're starting to see more and more entities in the army realize hey this isn't you know, something that needs to be hoarded by any specific data domain. These common data services need to be common to all. And much like the data services catalog and the API management platform, we need to start to expose these services because that hard work of what data do you have and the things that can be automated need to be automated. Where do you go to consume those services to understand and now be able to categorize your data appropriately? So then we can focus on how we appropriately secure it and create the access policies around it. So I want to kind of give a compliment um, that I didn't realize until this moment, um, specifically that the types of things that you're providing, the types of things that ECMA is doing right now has really, it's been a mindset shift, right? Because it is, you're an enabler. You are providing, you're, you're treating every um, PEO, every program, anybody who reaches out you're sensing what are the things that they're going to need and you're rationalizing how can we provide this at enterprise scale, enterprise class? Um, how can we provide the education? How can we provide the, the jump starts, the SDKs across, right? The software capability, as you said, across the basic, right? Basic cloud aspects and across the data services. So kudos for thinking like a service provider. Kudos for not coming at this with kind of the traditional dogma, right? The traditional dodaf, togaf, thou shouts in a way that made people, it got in their way um, as opposed to help them, right? It, it disabled instead of enabled. And so some of the approaches that you're taking right now specifically are enabling without disabling. And so, so kudos, Paul. Really, really appreciate uh, that. I appreciate that. It's, it's definitely a, a team effort, but one of the things that I've been really adamant about from the beginning, and that's the, that whole carrot stick discussion is, um, 
there's no commercial company in the world um, that is mandated and you know to be used by all their customers, right? Like mm-hmm. they, they're in the business of how do I actually capture a market, right? How do I deliver a service and capability people love okay. using? Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when we first stood up the ECMO, we started delivering services very adamant to the team. Like, hey, listen, uh, no one's going to be consuming our services because of some mandate. Um, that's just simply a world that creates shadow IT. We have to first capture people and deliver services that they love using because we add value. Um, and therefore, that means we need to be really purposeful as to where we spend our time. because so we have limited resources. We need to be spending our time in the things that actually truly get to that value and allow people to reach their objectives and their outcomes uh, in a better and faster way. Um, that's going to be the way that, that we, we differentiate ourselves. And sure, after a period of time, you know, it kind of you'll, you'll uh, say clean up the laggards, you know, with, with policy. But even then, um, and many will tell you, to me, policy that exists is just really the catalyst for a conversation. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to come to the table and say, oh, okay, I can see how you're a little special, a little bit different. Is that something I can actually just prioritize and deliver next? Because I'm constantly enhancing services within C-Army. Is this just something I can do next rather than you having to start from scratch on your own? Or does it make sense for you to do you know, your own thing? I'll describe a lot of the services we do in ECMA as kind of like the Walmart right like mm-hmm. you've got a number of people that are like oh like you know it's it's winter time and i'm cold and i want to be warm uh but i also want to look amazing you know while i'm doing it it's like well calm down more than likely the most important thing is you're just warm you know uh with well, that 80 percent right <laughs> it's prioritized <laughs> not everyone needs a gucci jacket uh to look amazing um but sometimes you know there's some some special scenarios in those cases but let's let's address those edge cases truly as edge cases as you uh, so that's and- as you implement the the services that everybody loves and wants to use, which, I mean, what a great mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, assuming you are building them with zero trust in mind and, and, you know, using that practice, or you add zero trust in later, how does mm-hmm. it affect the end user? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few different ways around this you know something you know so elegantly done um the use the user should be unaware yes um, however there is a there is a people upscaling uh thing here that that needs to be done no different than the world and like your you know your personal you know um email account that you use at home starting to employ like two-factor authentication other mechanisms that that starts to ensure that you know you are who you say you are. The credentials you bring are like truly your credentials. You know, having that, hey, I'm going to just, you know, ping and send a little code to this device that has been registered that I understand. You know, you see those things. It's like, hey, should should you, you know, trust this device for a period of time? What's really happening there is you're saying, uh, is there a token that this device is going to be given as a credential that says, hey, this thing is cool for the next 10 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it might be. Um, you're actually... Uh, really the recipient of someone who is starting to enhance the, the maturity and the capability, you know, of their services. Um, and it shouldn't feel so uh, dramatically toilsome where at the end of the day, you know, the value is you actually getting access to your email. If, if it's so secure that you can't even get access to your email, it's kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. So well, that's a conversation um, for another day, Paul. Yeah, yeah, for sure, but that's, that's oftentimes, <laughs> but that's oftentimes how the DoD has implemented policy, mm-hmm. right? It's it's why we see you know Michael's thing out there of like, hey, like fix our computers, like we've 
impose so much overhead on these systems that they're not usable. And that's why uh, the actual, um, you know, user center, the user experience executive order that came out, that got me jazzed because it creates these, these bounds in the sense of, hey, all these things at the expense of the actual user experience. Uh, cannot be the way that we do business. Um, so there's there's a little bit of tweak to that. So like for how we deliver services, I think so much of Zero Trust is in thoughtful architecture, mm-hmm. uh, which we have been quite purposeful uh, in how we deliver services. Uh, but we're also customers of other services that exist in the Army. So for instance, the Army is not the ICAM service provider for the, for the Army. We're consumers of that. Um, but how are we able to influence uh, their backlog and their prioritization and their way forward? Um, you know, part of the the new RDP that came out for the Army's ICAM strategy, uh, very close relationship between uh, myself and General Stanton over in the Cyber Center of Excellence, and the actual drafting of that to create the structure and the objectives to be achieved uh, with a mature ICAM solution that addresses not just humans, but also non-person entities, devices, um, that also addresses both the enterprise and the tactical domains. And so we've got influence there um, that then helps, quite frankly, grows the community of doers um, that see this new imperative and how we need to be delivering services. So it's not just the ECMA and C-Army, it's it's really collective trying to get after uh, the components of a zero trust reference architecture. So I wanna summarize what I just heard you say. So to Carolyn's question, what's what's this mean to the end user? There are kind of three different things that are going on there. One of them is to the extent possible, it's it'll be invisible to the extent possible, but it's not always going to be invisible. So there's upskilling, there's upskilling so that they know what MFA is. And they also have a shared sense of responsibility because security, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. cyber is everybody's responsibility. And the third thing that I heard Paul say is, they actually have a voice. They have a, a say in this. So they are they are consumers of all of this. So they need to be able, folks need to have that, that openness, that psychological safety. They need to be able to raise their hand and say, that, that ain't going to work. Here's why. At least hear me and help me work through this. And that's a bit different than what we've seen in past decades. It's a nice place to be right now. You know, that, that means that there's user centricity going on, that we are becoming human-centered with, with what we're doing. Yeah, that was a really well, good summary. I, when I, Paul, when you were talking, what I heard was zero trust is going to make my life easier, <laughs> to be honest, because if you guys do it right, like on the back end, then my life should be easier, even with MFA. And, you know, if there's something that's not working for me, I can say something. No. Well, so I'll say yes, and there's there's a few layers to that, Trace. I'm going to blame. Yes, and. Yes, and. Yeah. Yes, and. Yes, Listen, and. This is my and, improv and. class moment. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a few things that, that Trace said there, so I'll, I'll say a few different things. Um, there's, there's, there's an onus on the user here, and I'll, and I'll give an example. Um, Today, when people are contributing information into Office 365 that the duty uses, um, when you write an email, um, the contents of that email are not being labeled and categorized and, and classified in some way, shape, or form. When you chat with people in Teams, 
there's there's nothing saying, ooh, like that that information you just shared, that's controlled and classified information versus that other thing you said that's just like that. That's not happening. Um and so it's it's created, and even still today, this is places for maturity. Uh it's created a world where, well, then therefore everything about 365 has to be built to a specification for impact level five. That is not just unclassified data, not just controlled unclassified data, but also unclassified national system uh, security system data, NSS data, um, uh, that has to be you know to the tightest you know security controls possible. But in reality, there's no metadata catalog of all the data in 365 where you can say this is impact level four and this is impact level two and this is impact level five. It doesn't exist. So something you're going to see coming is for when you start to create emails, it's going to say, hey, uh, that email that you're trying to send, uh, can you just classify it for me real fast? Mm-hmm. Is that impact level two? Is that impact level four? And that requires I'm going to get a message. Well, you no different than, think about it right now. When you send an email, especially if you're using Outlook, it'll say, did you forget to attach something? Because yeah, in your in your body of it, you said, you know, I've got this really cool file or here's a picture. Yeah. So it's reading that and it's interpreting that, right? This is simple algorithms. You're going to see more of those algorithms to Paul's point as being fed as the data, the metadata is captured about it. And then they're able to look at the information inside that email. Hopefully that will also make life easier because... Yeah, you can have less of these rigid controls in place yeah. that lock things down so much. And you're becoming dependent upon those prompts and those users to say, yes, I have classified it the right way. I, I have. Tagged. I like those prompts, especially when they say it's after hours for Carol and maybe consider sending this email. Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I would, listen, oh, yeah. I would right. encourage right. you to, to put down the, the work computer and, and, and recharge. But it's, it's things like that. I mean, there, there are, of course, you know, um, uh, natural language processing that can look at your emails and start mm-hmm. to help, ca- you know, classify and categorize that for you. But, you know, part of building those algorithms and maturing those algorithms over time is to have the input from humans. No different than when you do a CAPTCHA online and you say, you know, right. here are all the sidewalk pictures or, or lights that's in the thing. So there is an onus on a user where we need the user to help contribute back into the ecosystem. But from your point of like, Yes, it's intended to make your life easier because, for instance, the fact that we often overclassify data means that now when we want to get into data sharing, there are crazy amounts of steps with humans we have to go through to reclassify that data that never should have been seen as some higher classification just in order to share it. Is If that's classified at its moment of creation, now you want to be able to share it and it's a perfectly shareable, you can start to, to do that. So yes, it should make your life easier, but it also should make uh, our outcomes uh, more repeatable and are exactly make us more efficient at the way that we, that we do business. And so the, there's a number secure. of pieces. But yeah. well, it naturally, if you know what you have and you can, you know, protect it appropriately, naturally the, the byproduct of that is, is security. But you, you made one comment that I want to wrap to that is security postures are constantly changing over time. Mm-hmm. New vulnerabilities are coming out. Um, new zero days exist, which means that every single system and service that we build and its acquisition strategy around it, the contract for it, the tools and the mechanisms we give to those teams really never goes into sustainment. It never goes into operations and maintenance. It is always in some form of continuous enhancement, whether that feedback loop is a security vulnerability or a user. 
And I would argue historically, people have, there's been no shortage of people expressing their pain and using the system. Right. Uh, but oftentimes we never created a contract uh, or put somebody in charge whose job it was to listen, to prioritize, and to address those user pains. And now we have. And at all, that's, that's the, this intention of uh, the components of right. agile acquisition and agile software delivery practices and human-centered design um, and leveraging you know, continuous integration and delivery pipelines where we start to automate and orchestrate all of the security and operational and developmental testing processes that have typically taken months, if not years, to go through are now becoming more of an automated you know, non-event, mm-hmm. which means that I can listen to your feedback, do something about it, and have a solution out there. Each one of the services and capabilities that the ECMA has put in place, we have designed our contracts precisely for that mission because the world is constantly changing, which means that we need to constantly adapt with it. And so our ability to mature in a zero trust practice requires all of the services and capabilities that we have to be able to respond to security events as well Mm -hmm. as user feedback so that we can continuously remove implicit trust over time. So this gets us, we're going to, we're going to start hour two and we're going to go into, (laughs) I'm going to keep talking at you, Paul. I'm going to keep talking to you. I was just going to say, Tracy, you got to pick. I'm looking at all my questions. I'm like, I I need more hours. We we, we don't. What we need to do is we need to wrap because I think people have a lot to digest with just this. They're thinking about um, data. They are thinking about, you know, that moat concept. They're thinking about prioritization. They're thinking about, do I have an ECMA in my neck of the woods? If I'm not working with Army, who's my ECMA? Do I have an ECMA? And if I don't, who should I be leaning on? Who should I be looking to? Like, there's lots of stuff here to, to chew on. Um, well, and those three things that, Paul, that you said you you put forward, and I, I don't remember when, but your common cloud services, common tools mm-hmm. and services, common data services, like, those should just be, like, pinned up on our wall, right? And well, Yeah, so if you those. go read the, so it was February of 2020, and if you go read the Army Cloud Plan 2020, we actually have a 2022 uh, revision coming here shortly. Um, you'll see those three components, common cloud mm-hmm. services, common software services, and common data services. And that's that's really the ante to play the game. Yeah. Right? That's just like, to be able to, our lives to be, you know, be easier and better if we could just do those those three things. Yeah, and deeper than all of the buzzwords, um, I think you start to see that in these movements of you know the software modernization working groups and the mm-hmm. you know the cloud computing working groups and you know some of the new Kind of data services teams, especially the Advana crew uh, over in the uh, the now merged into uh, to CDAO. I think you start to see people. I just think too many people get caught up in the buzzwords and the facade. And when you oh, gosh, just yes. really dive into the components, right? It's it's pretty tangible, uh, workable, doable things. It's just you know no different. Creating people with the authority and the resources and the charter to go get after it. Yeah. And the buzzwords are everywhere. Part of why we're doing this podcast series is to kind of take people past the buzzwords, but not get into that deep dive. People are not going to walk away from here and immediately start implementing, but they're going to be noodling on this stuff. And that's what's the most important piece, Paul. So 
Oh, I really want to thank you for for joining us today. This has been a fantastic conversation. And, and Paul, I've I also, had, truth be told, am getting to uh, work with Paul uh, here and there with some of my work with the Army recently. So I'm getting to see both sides of this as the as the observer from the outside and a little bit on the inside. So I'll shoot you some feedback on what's going right and what's going wrong there, Paul. No, <laughs> just joking, just joking. So yeah, um, it's it's been great working with you, Trace. So so I appreciate it. So Carolyn, where do we go from here? Well, I think you just said it. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. And I feel like I have more clarity around zero trust being manageable, even though you, I mean, we talked about these huge elephants, but there's a methodology and there's a way to approach and attack this. And you guys are doing it. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. And I'm sure this will be a widely shared podcast, but be sure to share, like, and we'll talk to you next month. Thanks for joining Tech Transforms, sponsored by Dynatrace. For more Tech Transforms, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. 